Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all. You have braved this dangerous winter storm that we have all gone through. I mean, please. So I am the big cynic. Yesterday, I was like, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. So I had to send funny pictures to friends this morning of me like upside down in a snowbank and saying like the front of my house, you know, no, nothing happened. Um, glad you all are here. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 25. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today, and we ask that you help make space inside of us, free us up, and let us be filled with your spirit, that as we learn your stories more and more, we are inspired to do the work you've given us to do for the good of your world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we are doing Genesis chapter 25, but I have an interesting question that I received two weeks ago, so I skipped it last week, so let's tackle that first. Um, This question, I think, is a really excellent one for us to vet a little bit more, and some of you may have been kind of rolling this around since we talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, The question is very long, so I'm going to try and summarize it. Um, This person writes... When I discussed about rules between Muslim, Jewish, Christian rules, um, did she understand that Muslim and Jewish rules are laws and that Christian rules are not laws? And if they're not laws, then how do we consider things like rules within the Christian tradition? There's no legally binding ideas and things like that. Very interesting. So. What you may remember from a couple weeks ago is that I made a distinction between two words. So, how am I going to write this? Let's see. Orthodoxy. And, did you say, uh uh-oh, red? Did you say? That's funny. Um, And orthopraxy. So... Orthodoxy and orthopraxy literally means right. So ortho means right. And doxy means belief. Praxy means practice. So this orthodoxy is Christian. Oh my gosh. And orthopraxy is Judaism and Islam. Okay, so we all know the word or the term orthodox, right? So it is literally right belief. That means that Christianity is grounded, founded, the fundamental idea of Christianity is it is the right way to believe. And I think that for most I would say most Christian theology is predicated on belief first, and then practice flows from belief. So the idea is basically, if you believe this stuff, you will act like you believe it. If you believe it, then you will change the way you act. You can't help it. And so part of what um, happened in the Reformation within Christianity is that Martin Luther and other reformers flipped what had been a practice-based understanding of Christianity to a belief-based understanding of Christianity. Why this is important is most of the people sitting in this room are going to be what we would, no one actually says this, but a reformed Christian. So quite literally, we come from the reformation branches of Christianity. So for a thousand years, there was just Christian Then in 1054, we had the split between East and West. That gives us Roman Catholics in the West and Orthodox Eastern Christians in the East, okay? Fast forward another 500 years, and in the middle 16th century, we get two concurrent Reformations. One is in continental Europe. That's the Protestant Reformation. That gives us Presbyterians, Lutherans, and then ultimately Baptists. And then you had the Anglican Reformation happening in Britain, which gave us Church of England, Episcopalians, and Methodists. So those Reformed Christians 
are the ones that flipped to focus on right belief. So Martin Luther kind of famously said, right, you are saved by grace. And what that is, is when you believe, grace saves you, period. For a long time, Catholics in particular, Roman Catholics, focused a lot more on the idea of practice, right practice, less about belief. You needed to go to mass. You needed to receive communion. You needed to go to confession, right? There are all of these practices that you had to do. And famously, what happened is those practices took control. People stopped believing, and they were just checking the boxes off, right? And you see these funny moments like ever watch a mafia movie, right? What is the end of the Godfather, right? Brilliant, a brilliant commentary on kind of the failure of church in the 20th century, right? Because you get these, and I, I don't want to ruin the Godfather for anybody, but I kind of feel like, I feel like that's safe, right? If you haven't seen it at this point, it's your fault. Okay. So at the end of The Godfather, you've got effectively these murders and this terrorism happening juxtaposed between what? A baptism, right? So you've got these scenes flipping back and forth showing this horrible murder while the same family is baptizing a baby in a church. What's the point of that? The point for me is... So long as you do the stuff, right? You got your kid baptized, check, you're going to heaven. So long as you go to mass and you receive communion, check. What you do in between doesn't really matter. What you believe doesn't really matter because you've done the right stuff. This shift to right belief is something that has been much more important in the last 500 years of Christianity. Now, to be fair, it became important to all Christian traditions, right? Including Catholic and Orthodox. So even though in the early second millennia, right? So we're talking about Europe in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. Even though some of that got off balance, in the last few hundred years, belief really is most critically important to all major Christian groups. This is not something we have, um, we have figured out that other Christian groups have not figured out. That's not really what I'm saying. But there is a history of focusing on practice that led to the Reformation. And it's the Reformation that then informed back groups like the Catholic Church, right? You get Vatican II in the 60s, is quite literally a reaction to the Reformation and what was going on within culture. Now, I think it's kind of funny, it took, what, 400 years um, for there to be a reaction, but you've got a, an evolution of theology toward belief. Interestingly, if you've had, well, what I should say is, behind the curtain, so to speak, when I conceive of how to help people here at St. Michael grow in their faith, I actually tend to emphasize practice more than belief myself. Because I think that we are now in a new cultural shift in the 21st century where we cannot presuppose belief. You know, 150 years ago, people were doing things like reading the Bible at home, right? That's kind of one of the things you did. You sang religious songs with your family. You talked and you prayed out in the open in the public sphere. And I'm talking about before any of us in here were born. In the last 80 to 100 years, we have, we, kind of the church in general, have effectively acted like that is still a reality, it is not, nor has it been. This is not something that has all of a sudden become a problem in the last 10 to 20 years. For 80 years, we've not been doing this right. We've not been doing this well. And the Episcopal Church is one of the worst at assuming what people have when they walk through the door. Everything that we do and all the stuff we love and all the fancy things and the banners and the whatever that we talk about and we enjoy presupposes a baseline understanding of what is even going on in this space. That we cannot assume anymore. 
If we assume people understand what we are doing when they come in this room, we, are, we lose from the start. That is why for me, practice has now been re-emphasized. So for example, last fall, I gave you all journals, right? I literally wanted you to write every day what you were grateful for. Coming up in Lent, by the way, teaser, we are preparing daily podcast prayers that people can do every single day, less than 10 minutes. It will pop right to your phone 5 a.m. every morning. And at some point every day, take 10 minutes and say your prayers with us. We recorded them. And so this will be something that you will make a habit. And if you even begin to think about telling me that you don't have 10 minutes a day to pray, just hear me now, you have a problem in your life, okay? And that is what we are going to be trying to reorder is prioritization. Because how many people hear all the time, I am so busy, I do not have time, I cannot do that. I'll, that is epidemic and it's a problem and it is a disorder. And what we are gonna talk about in Lent is reordering that disorder in our life. And we're gonna start with a practice. 10 minutes every day, pray. That's it. So this is not all of a sudden becoming a monk and living in the desert, right? No, we're not talking about that. Just a little thing. Everyone can do it. But once you do that for six weeks, you might actually want to do a little bit more because you realize that's not a big deal. So anyway, that's the belief and practice here. So to get back to the general question, Judaism and Islam root themselves in a practice-based religion. That does not mean that adherents of Judaism and Islam do not believe it. What that means is that the first most important thing in Judaism and Islam is doing the stuff. Then, by doing the stuff, you will believe the stuff. Whereas Christianity flips that. And we say, theologically speaking, you believe. And then out of your belief, you will not be able to keep from doing the good things. Does that make sense? So it's less about laws and rules and more about kind of the starting place. Where do you begin? And then where do you go from that beginning place? And by the way, it's a, it's a total cycle, right? You believe a little, you do a little, then you, because you did that little bit, you believe a bit more and then you do a bit more. And it's, it's all a, a, should be a spiral upwards towards something that is better and better and better. That doesn't always work. Life gets in the way. We get shaken and we get hurt and we get into crisis moments that change our reality. And then we kind of have to rebuild again, start again, and that's okay. But fundamentally, we as Christians think it starts with belief and then goes from there. The other thing I wanna say about rules is I don't like them, and I think that Jesus's basic message in the Gospels speaks to rules, laws, boundaries, not being the way to salvation, that it really is about love. It's about a belief in the power of love and in the relationship we have with God that actually saves us. Doesn't mean rules aren't important, but rules won't save you. That is effectively the whole message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and on and on, is that the rules that they created are not what will help them achieve salvation. And I hope that at this point in studying Genesis, what you go back to is the anchor of the rules. Why all the rules in Judaism? Because of the exile, right? The Jews, everything was going up and everything was great. And then the exile. Assyria, Babylon decimates the Jewish community. And what do they ask themselves? How did this happen? How did this happen? And effectively, the answer is, we got something wrong. They land on God is not unfaithful, but we walked away from God. So how do we keep from ever making that mistake again? Well, let's put some rules in place. So what began as a few rules, became a few more rules, became a ton of rules, became what was at the time the most complete, thorough, intelligent, 
set of laws humanity had ever created. And into that comes Jesus. And he says, that the rules, the rules don't save you. And in fact, the rules are getting in your way. So when people criticize Jesus for touching a woman, for eating with a tax collector, for speaking to a sinner, or praising a Samaritan, and the religious leaders, who are very full of themselves, say, wait a minute, those are all bad people. Jesus says, they are all beloved people. And your rules have perverted the way you see your fellow human. Which is why Christianity comes down to you just love each other. That's it. <laughs> and we don't like it. I mean, immediately when you say that, what's the next thing most people think? How? And then all of a sudden you start to innocently and without any bad intention, start to create rules around how that love works. Yeah, it's hard stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Did you hear what Nancy said? Don't let the Bible get in the way of God. That's like don't let religion get in the way of faith. Don't let the church get in the way of your belief. I mean, they're on and on and on and on. I mean, that's the best of it. We even try to articulate this in some way. Why do we wear white when we are doing church, when we're up front? The goal is that we go away. That's the point, is that when we wear white, we kind of vanish because we're, sort of, we're not really supposed to get in the way. We're supposed to kind of be like a window that you see through. But then it's a special day. So wouldn't it be nice if we weren't wearing just white and we were wearing something shiny? And then if it's a really special day, what if everything was shiny, right? And then we have such a high ceiling, we should totally carry flags and banners, right? And then all of a sudden it's a parade. And I love a parade, but if any of that becomes more important, then it is disordered. And that's what community, that's why community matters. Any one of us left our own devices will become so perverted and so disordered unless we have people around us who can look at us and say, that is not important. Stop, put it down, do not worry, do not stress. But also acknowledge that we can't just turn it off. So instead, what are some practices? Things like just pray. Right? If you start off with, I was just sitting with one of our most senior members of this congregation, maybe the oldest living member of our congregation, um, and was told that every morning he wakes up and he says, I love you, God. That's it. How, how good does that feel? Right? How, what a right direction you put yourself on every day. If you just start with something that simple, it's like that one, what army general who said, make your bed every morning, because then you've achieved something before you even walk out of your bedroom. Praise you have, right. my apologies. <laughs> I meant a Navy admiral so much better than an army general, of course. Um, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Whatever. Um, but you know, it's that same idea of put yourself, get yourself started right. So you make your bed in the morning, you're off in the right direction. You feel good. You've achieved something. And now the rest of the day is ahead of you. Um, creating those kinds of habits are really, are really quite good. Okay. So thank you all. Let's jump into chapter 25. So chapter 25 is focuses entirely on the birth and the early life of Jacob and Esau. So I'm going to divide chapter 25 into four sections. The first is we've got the burial of Abraham. Abraham dies, and we have a really remarkable burial scene. Number two we have what I think is a very under-considered uh, under um, moment, which is Rebecca's prayer to God. So I'm going to lift that up. Number three, we've got twinsies. 
So the twins are born. Oh, I can't even write today, sorry. And then number four, we have Esau's birthright. So Abraham, Rebecca, the twins, and then Esau and Jacob have a little moment. So we're going to start with Abraham's burial. Chapter 25, verse 7. Chapter 25, verse 7. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. A lot happens in those few verses. First off, we've got some technical information. Remember back when Sarah died, the people around Abraham said, you have become a part of this community and you should be able to bury your wife well. And so Abraham purchases a burial plot near where he is living. So remember, Abraham's not from here, right? Abraham's from far away. This is not where he is from. One of the reasons Isaac doesn't leave to go find a wife is because he wants to be able to claim being from there. And so Abraham, who is always a visitor because he wasn't born there, is validated and honored by giving, by receiving the ability to purchase a good burial site for Sarah. Fast forward, when Abraham dies, he is also buried with Sarah in that same honored site. And I referenced uh, last week or two weeks ago that you can go and visit that site. I have not been, but it's near Bethlehem and Jer Jerusalem. Kind of it's in that central part um, south of Jerusalem. What I think is most interesting, however, is in verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave. Wait a minute. Where did Ishmael come from? Right? If we remember the story, Ishmael, firstborn, born of Hagar, is, was sent out. And he was sent out into the desert. We know, I think I mentioned this in, in that class, that in our tradition, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out well, which basically means sends them out with supplies. So this is not a go off and die in the desert kind of sending out, but it's also not that secure either. They're sent out with food and water and camels and probably people to be helpful, but it's very uncertain. In the Quran, Abraham goes with Ishmael, finds a place gets them set up, and then goes back home to be with Sarah and Isaac. So either way, fine. But Ishmael's been out of the picture, right? We've done a whole lot of stuff without Ishmael. But Abraham dies, Ishmael comes back, and Ishmael helps Isaac to bury their dad. I think this is a really important moment because Ishmael could have totally disconnected from the family, right? Imagine if you were Ishmael, what stories you would have heard, what kind of heartbreak you would have experienced having to leave your home, having to go off and recreate and restart your life while Isaac gets all the stuff that probably technically should have been yours. What I like to read into this story is that at some point in time, Ishmael's obviously kept in touch, right? How else would they have known how to tell him Abraham died? At some point, there was some kind of reconciliation where I like to imagine Ishmael realized Isaac was not at fault. Isaac didn't do that. Isaac was a kid and they were brothers and they needed each other. They were stronger in a relationship with each other. And so here they can come back and share this moment together to effectively kind of celebrate, mourn, bury their father. Yes. Well, I haven't not gotten there yet. No. Um, yeah, so 
it, it, the question is, what about the other wives and the children and all the other stuff? So one thing to note, the Old Testament is not an objective observer of history. The Old Testament is telling a story. And so if you're not really important to the story, you're sort of not dealt with, right? It'd be like reading any biography, or if you were to write your biography, or someone were to write a biography about you, there are plenty of things, most things in your life would not be in it. Because they're effectively inconsequential to kind of who you are, who you became. If you were to tell a good story, you would draw a line, you would connect the most important dots all the way through that led you to who you are. In a very similar way, they know where they're going, right? This story is not happening in real time. They are in the exile looking back and writing their history, which means they know where it ends, at least at that point. And so they're trying to connect the most important dots along the way. And those other children are sort of like Jesus's brothers and sisters. By the way, Jesus had siblings. We can talk about that some other time. I know, like, um, but you know, that there's a reference point in the gospels where they refer to Jesus's brothers. And that's not like, that's not fraternal brothers. That is actual literal blood relatives. So Jesus may have been the firstborn, but he was not the only born. And so I apologize if that ruins your day, but that's, it's sort of like this where the through line of the story is Isaac and Ishmael. Any, what do I want to say? We have over and over again in these stories, I'll talk about it in one second when we're talking about Rebecca. What is the ultimate good that you can do as a human in the Old Testament? It's not a trick question. Have children. That is the answer. So that is the ultimate good. That is the number one thing that we are supposed to do, which is why in story after story after story, the issue begins with barrenness, right? There is almost always trouble conceiving. And then God steps in and they are blessed to conceive a child, to have a child. That is always the ultimate good of our life, which by the way, is hard to hear if you have been unable to have children or chose not to have children, because that is, that is a new modern, ah, uh, we, was it last week or two weeks ago when I talked about the shift in the marriage ceremony between the former prayer book and the current prayer book in the Episcopal Church? The, the older prayer book, having kids is right there. Number one, when the priest prays for the couple that got married, he's praying for kids. And by the way, it was a he because it was back in the, you know, 50 years ago. Um, Nowadays, when he or she prays for a couple at their marriage, if you have not looked recently in the marriage ceremony, there's a series of prayers. Not only is having children way down the list of the prayers, but there's a little line next to that prayer, which signals to the officiant, that's Book of Common Prayer Code for optional. So I have. Now, occasionally you have a sweet couple in their 80s getting married. And you know what? I am not praying for kids, right? That's okay. They don't want them. It's fine. But I have twice married couples in their 20s who have asked not to have that prayer said because they do not want children. Like they have very clearly decided between the two of them. It's only happened twice. And in both times, I just think, how do you know? How can you know that? Um, but they are crystal clear. And in both cases, they said they love kids. They had nieces and nephews. They love their nieces and nephews. They were not going to have children. Uh, okay. I mean, that, okay. 
But it is interesting that I actually, as the officiant, get the option to say that prayer or not. It's not just for a subsequent marriage where children are not really desired because you already have some. It could also be because you don't want them. Then there's also obviously physical limitations, whether people can or cannot have children. Um, but in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, really in the Old Testament, it is absolutely central to your identity. And it's not only central to your identity, it is about your security. If you do not have children, you are vulnerable. And so not having kids means you will likely be poor and die young because you do not have anyone to help defend and lift you up and support you. So in this moment, there is, there is certainly, there are other kids that Abraham would have had. Because by the way, that's just kind of how it worked. Sorry. Um, I mean, we can talk about polygamy if we want to, but that's not, I, just put that aside. So yes, there are other people, um, but they are not necessarily important to the through line of the story. Which takes me to Rebecca. So part two here is that Rebecca's prayer is absolutely around her identity as a parent, as a mother. Jump ahead to verse 21. So the, in between here, we get the account of Ishmael's descendants. So we get multiple generations of Ishmael's descendants, and you should know just in world history that Muhammad traces himself as a descendant of Ishmael in the same way that Jesus traces himself as a descendant of both David and Isaac to Abraham. So just, just, so, we, just so you know. So Rebecca's prayer, verse 21. Isaac, first praise. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, just we just said. And the Lord granted his prayer and his wife Rebecca conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? <laughs> so she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. In this moment, there's one particular thing happening that I just want to lift up. We could, as modern people, miss just how remarkable it is that Rebecca goes and talks to God. Because we kind of like people are talking to God, right? Not people, men. This is very unique. It's not that it never, ever happens again to a woman, but I just want to lift up. This is a very exceptional moment where a woman talks to God. Praying is, is, happens, but actual talking and getting a response, if we read this very clearly, Isaac prays, Rebecca conceives. It doesn't say God said to Isaac, don't worry about it, I got it. it that's not what happens. Isaac prays, she conceives. That happens today. What it then says is, Rebecca was, these twins inside of her were driving her crazy, right? I mean, Rebecca as a mother, as a pregnant woman with twins was being so annoyed by these kids in her, in her that she goes to God and says, are you kidding me right now? Like, what is going on? And God said... There are two nations in your womb and they are not going to get along. Dang, that is not what a pregnant woman wants to hear, right? <laughs> I mean, of all the things that you could hear, that is for sure on the list of please no, right? That is not the kind of response you want from God. But that's the response God gives. Now, we will continue the line of the story, but I just want to make sure that we know Rebecca... In the, in the story of the patriarchs, right, we've got this through line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? There's the line. Sarah, Sarah's in there, and we will get Rachel and Leah and the others in there with Jacob, but Rebecca, of all the four patriarchs, Isaac is the least interesting. Isaac kind of just, he shows up and he's there for a bit and then he's gone, 
Whereas Abraham and Jacob and Joseph have such better stories about who they are and the adventures that they get into, Isaac's kind of just around for a bleep and he's gone. But Rebecca stands out among those women because she has a huge amount of identity. I mean, she is strong. She is saying, I have a problem. I'm not going to ask Isaac to talk to God. I'm going to talk to God. And that's pretty remarkable. So jump ahead. Let's look at the result of God's response to Rebecca's prayer. Verse 24. When it was Rebecca's time to give birth, there were twins in her womb. I love how they act like she didn't know. Okay. There were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Let's start with their names. So we get first Esau, then Jacob. Esau is a word that sounds like hairy in Hebrew. So the, there's a, an immediate link here between being hairy and his name. So effectively, he looked hairy or was hairy, so they named him Harry. I mean, that's kind of what happened. Um, later, he will be described again as red, and, been, and be given the name, which maybe means nickname, it's a little unclear, Edom. Because Edom actually literally means red. So here Esau has two names. Esau, which pretty much sounds like Harry, and Edom, which means red. So Esau is red and hairy, very attractive. <laughs> then you get Jacob. And Jacob is described as holding on to Esau's heel at birth. First, can we just say Rebecca is a champion, right? She's not only having twins, but Jacob's holding on to Esau's heel at birth. Good for her. Um, Jacob, because he is holding on to Esau's heel, shows that he's got this fight in him. And Jacob literally means the one who supplants, or what most people like to use is the word trickster. So Jacob in Hebrew leans into this idea that maybe he was born second technically, but even from the moment of birth, Jacob is looking to catch Esau or to literally trip him up by grabbing his heel. So fast forward to verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. <laughs> All right, we'll pause there. So the setup. Most parents will do gymnastics to try and make sure you know they do not have a favorite child, right? Yes. And I believe some parents, and then others I think are just lying. Um, but one way or the other, parents like to say, like, we love our children equally, we don't have a favorite, we, whatever makes you feel good. But the truth is, anyone who has had more than one child knows some children are kind of like you, and some children are not, not like you. And what we get here is the setup. Esau is like Isaac. Jacob is like Rebekah. Esau is that classic masculine identity, right? We get that clear masculinity here. He is red, he is hairy, he likes to hunt, he likes game, right? It's very much like, ugh. Then we get... Jacob, and Jacob is very feminine. Jacob likes to live inside. He doesn't really want to get dirty. He likes to cook. We will see that actually he's relatively effective at cooking um, because of what happens with Esau in just a minute. They are teed up, not only firstborn, secondborn, but they're also set up as masculine and feminine, which we should not under 
uh, underemphasize. We, in our culture, still have that identity, but we've also kind of progressed, right? Remember that term, metrosexual? Remember that from the 90s? Um, we, we have sort of accepted in a somewhat intentional, but I think honest way, that there are very different ways of being male and female. And whether you are male or female does not mean that you are masculine or feminine. You can be both in either. And so we may read this and miss the real explicit part of this story, which is Jacob's not the man, right? That is really what is happening in this story. Not only is he second born, but he is not showing any of the manly identity that one would expect of someone who would be the heir. And yet, God's purposes are worked through Jacob. So not only is Jacob not firstborn, but Jacob is also the one that is demonstrably less manly than Esau. That flips upside down all of the conventional wisdom and the cultural understandings that the people who write this story would have had. This is not an accident. There is no one who is, we don't have some fabulous storyteller here who is trying to lift up Jacob as being equal to Esau. No, there must have been something about the way that the story had been told for hundreds of years that emphasized Jacob's femininity and that he is the one through which God will work his purpose. That is not something that we should underestimate. I'll stop there and we'll continue. Anything else? Any questions about that before we get to the action? None? Okay. Verse 29. So we have teed ourselves up here where we've got twin boys who are very different. One's outside, one's inside. We get verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. That's so weird. Then verse 31, Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. <laughs> That's such a crazy story. Okay, so we have to start with a very important idea of birthright. A birthright is something you get or you don't get at birth, but it is something a person possesses. It is something that can be given. It can be given away, it can be sold, it can be abdicated. Think about the abdication of Edward VIII, right, from the British throne, right? He wants to go off Mary Wallace Simpson. They say he can't, so he abdicates the throne, and his brother becomes king. Edward had the birthright, but Edward owned it like a possession that he could decide to give away or abdicate or sell. In a very similar way, Esau has that birthright, but it is not something that must, under no circumstances, stay with him. Esau can choose to give it away. Now, that's not something that should be flippant, even though it is obviously very flippant here, but it should be something that is honored. And if abdicated, like in Britain, it is done very seriously, and it is kind of shameful in a sense. Esau here seems to be very flippant, which is why at the very end, the author says Esau despised his birthright. This story had to have been the story that people told for generations and generations and generations. And so these writers are trying to make sense of this and it sounds like they couldn't. And so they just threw Esau straight under the bus 
right? I mean, they could not defend what Esau did. And so instead, they just said Esau was a bad guy, dishonorable, shameful. And they just tied it off with a bow there. So let's look at this story. Jacob is a good cook. Esau is apparently a good hunter. Esau comes in and does, I imagine, we don't know this, I imagine that they're like 15, right? Because I kind of imagine the 15, 16, 17-year-old boy coming in after playing a long day and being starving, you know? And I am so hungry, I am starving. There is no way Esau was actually starving, right? Esau could have figured this out, but he was dramatic and lazy and he smelled something good and so he needed whatever was easy. And Jacob had this good stew cooking. We don't know that Jacob did this on purpose, but it certainly seems like the story has implied that Jacob is a trickster. And so maybe Esau was out on a long hunt. Maybe he'd been gone for a couple days. And if you're out on a long hunt, you take some food and water with you, but that's never going to be enough. And so did Jacob really think through Esau's going to be really hungry when he gets home. So then he starts to do all the good stuff, right? What smells so good? Like butter with onions and garlic. And I mean, you know, when you start to do that and it just like perfumes the whole house and you walk in and maybe you were hungry, then you smell that and you are starving, right? And like, when is dinner? That is perhaps what has happened in the tent, right? Esau comes in, he is tired, he is hungry, and Jacob has done something really good in the pot. Jacob, who does not have a birthright, but who wants it, is working hard to get what he wants. Esau, who was given the birthright at birth, does not seem to understand its power. In a sense, this is an issue of privilege. When you have it, you don't often believe that it matters. You don't honor it. You don't respect it. You don't own it. You don't treat it respectfully. Jacob, who doesn't have it, wants it bad. And so Esau, in a sense, out of his own privilege, just sells it for a bowl of soup, because what is it to me, Esau says, when I might die of starvation? That is crazy to us from the outside. But how many of us don't actually understand our own privilege to know what it is that we get, have, that we did not earn? And how often do we, in a sense, give that away for nothing? How often do we use what it is, that privilege that we have been given, to do something meaningful instead of doing something that is kind of worthless and lazy? Most of us don't use our privilege enough. Most of us don't own it, understand it, use it as a tool to do good things in the world. Instead, we kind of are just used to it. We're almost unaware of it, and we can give it away without it making any real impact. In a sense, Esau has done just that. Jacob, however, who does not have the privilege, sees it, knows he wants it, and is going to work hard for it. And I would argue that Jacob has absolutely orchestrated this moment. Now, we can perceive Esau as a dumb oaf. I think that's a little unfair. I think Esau is someone who does not understand what he has and instead just gives it away. Jacob is shrewd, and Jacob gets his birthright. And you will notice that Jacob says to Esau, swear to me first, because this cannot just be considered flippant. Jacob in that moment says, yeah, he's kind of got him in the trap, and he says, you swear to me, because when Esau swears, it's real. And then Jacob receives what Esau does not value which changes history for good. Jacob becomes the person through which God will work the purposes. And Jacob's descendants will now be the primary recipients of God's promise that he made all the way back to Abraham and will carry through to Jacob's children who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and create now what Israel is to become. All right. Any questions about any of this? Yes, ma'am. Say again. Good question. Okay, that's a good question. So her question is, don't the parents have a say in this? Um, and you kind of asked two questions. One is, wouldn't the parents be able to prevent the heir from giving it away? Or would the parents be able to choose the heir? And the answer to the first and second is no. Um, parents do not choose whether or not the heir does or does not give it away because they're not the ones who are the heir. Nor can a parent decide who the heir is because it is by birthright. So you couldn't have, this is a great example of, you have Esau born first, Jacob born second. The parents don't choose that the second child is the one who receives um, or who becomes the heir because it is birthright. The first child can give it away but the parents can't give to the second child what belongs rightly to the first child. They cannot choose that. So you might say, what about Ishmael, right? We are one generation away from, how about that firstborn? Why then is Ishmael sent away? Because if Ishmael is not sent away, Ishmael becomes the heir. So effectively Ishmael is, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? He is, uh, hello, my word, I don't have the word. What is the word when you get pushed out or? Excommunicated, that's funny. Exiled, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, effectively, Ishmael is exiled from the family. Now, as the story is told, I think the implication is, we don't know what happened to Ishmael, right? Ishmael goes off, Ishmael could be dead, but Ishmael's not here. He is gone. There is an exile for Ishmael. We know that obviously Ishmael stays in touch because he shows up for Abraham's burial. But in that moment of inheritance, Isaac is the one who is there. So could the parents have exiled Esau? Yes. And then Jacob would have been the heir. But that's not, that's not done lightly. And you would have effectively killed, Jake, uh, killed Esau off in order to make Jacob the heir. And that's, there's no reason to do it. Um, and at this point, the reason could be stupidity, but it's too late. Jacob's already got it. So Esau doesn't have to be sent away because Esau has abdicated that responsibility and that identity to his brother. Any other questions before we end? All right, everybody. Good to see you. I'll see you next week.